0: Thank you everyone for joining us today. I have Eric here, my co-host, and we are Exposing Mold. We have a very special guest here with us. Her name is Dr. Cheryl Harding. Welcome, Dr. Harding. We're extremely excited to have you on because there is some work that you've done that we are just so amazed by. What drove you to become interested in researching toxic mold? Hello, everyone. I'd love to introduce you to Home Cleanse, formerly known as All-American Restoration. They are the first and only remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Visit them at homecleanse.com. Hello everyone, Alicia here. One of the most common questions I receive from our audience members is this, who can I trust to perform a thorough mold inspection of my home? The Mold Guy performs mold inspections specifically for individuals who require a much higher standard of care owing to your complex health concerns like CIRS, Lyme, CFS, autoimmune issues, and more. Their testing and inspection process supersedes all current industry standards on purpose, making them thought leaders and disruptors in an industry unwilling to change old and outdated paradigms. Book your complimentary phone consults here at themoldguyinc.com connect. That's themoldguyinc.com c-o-n-n-e-c-t.
1: As a researcher... The first question you ask yourself when you're thinking about beginning a new project is, what are the gaps in our knowledge? When we started our mold research, there were some really large gaps. The first question was whether a specified dose of mold could actually cause the symptoms mold-exposed people reported. Could mold cause cognitive and emotional dysfunction? All the research on mold patients was correlational. There were no experiments and there was very little knowledge of the actual dose of mold to which they'd been exposed, or even the identity of all the molds and bacteria involved. Water-damaged buildings are typically not contaminated by just one species of mold, but by a complex stew, multiple molds, bacteria, and then the breakdown products from the damaged building materials. Could administering a precise dose of just one mold cause brain fog? The second question had to do with non-toxic mold. Was that dangerous? People who believed mold caused serious health problems generally attributed the adverse effects to toxic molds. So the question was, could exposure to non-toxic mold also have adverse consequences for the brain and behavior? Animal studies had found that non-toxic mold, or even just one single component of the mold cell wall, cause strong innate immune activation and inflammation in the lungs. Since immune activation anywhere in the body typically causes immune activation in the brain, these data suggested that non-toxic mold should also affect the brain, causing lesser, but still significant, cognitive and emotional problems. The third question was the issue of how mold could cause all of the symptoms people have reported. There are three generally accepted mechanisms through which mold exposure affects the human health. Allergy, infection, and toxicity. People who denied the ability of mold to cause all the physical and behavioral problems mold-exposed people reported said that these three mechanisms could not cause the plethora of symptoms reported. I proposed an alternate mechanism. This was based on research on how bacterial exposure is able to cause very similar cognitive and emotional problems. I suggested that mold inhalation activates an innate immune response in the lungs that is quickly communicated to the brain, activating brain immune cells. This causes brain inflammation, causing mold-induced dysfunction. So the question was, does mold exposure cause innate immune activation in the brain, and could the resultant inflammation be a causal mechanism? explaining how mold causes these symptoms. The innate immune system has receptors for components of the mold cell wall and also receptors for fungal RNA or DNA, just like it has these similar receptors for these components of bacteria and viruses. It seemed likely to me that innate immune activation could be responsible for symptoms of mold exposed individuals. So I designed a series of experiments that could provide answers to these basic questions and begin to fill in the rather large gaps in our knowledge. Since patient symptoms following mold exposure are indistinguishable from those caused by innate immune activation following bacterial exposure, I based much of my research design on the foundational research on innate immune activation caused by bacterial challenge. What did we find? Our research conclusively demonstrated, for the first time, that specified doses of mold actually caused symptoms that mold-exposed people reported. Mold-exposed mice showed striking changes in behavior, higher levels of anxiety, deficits in both short- and long-term memory, and increased sensitivity to pain. As we expected, non-toxic as well as toxic stachybotrys spores caused behavioral dysfunction. Toxic molds provide a wide variety of stimuli in addition to the spore skeleton, including toxins bioactive chemicals, and volatile organic components. I had therefore hypothesized that toxic spores would cause more profound behavioral disruption. However, this was not always the case. On some measures, the non-toxic spores caused equivalent effects, on some even greater dysfunction than the toxic spores. On one learning task, mice treated with non-toxic spores showed equivalent short and long-term memory loss compared to mice treated with toxic spores. And only mice treated with non-toxic spores showed elevated levels of anxiety and deficits in long-term memory on a spatial learning task. Treatment with both toxic and non-toxic stachybotry spores caused innate immune activation accompanied by brain inflammation. Toxic spores always cause more immune activation and brain inflammation than non-toxic spores. We focused on mold's effects on the hippocampus, an area of the brain which is very important in many types of learning and memory. The hippocampus is also very sensitive to immune activation. It has more immune cells per square inch than other areas of the brain. One of the symptoms of bacterially induced sickness behavior is difficulty with learning and memory tasks that depend on the hippocampus. All treated mice show these same deficits on hippocampal dependent spatial and contextual memory. To look at inflammation levels, we quantified the numbers of cells expressing IL-1 beta. This is a molecule that's rapidly released by immune cells in response to mold. And this sets off an inflammatory cascade. As expected, mice treated with toxic mold spores had significantly more cells expressing IL-1 beta in the hippocampus than control mice. Mice treated with non-toxic spores had more io one beta-expressing cells than controls, but fewer than those in the toxic spore group. Our second measure of brain inflammation was neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons. The hippocampus is one of the few brain areas where neuron birth occurs in the adult brain. Studies have shown that the birth of these neurons plays a very important role in certain types of learning and memory, like the spatial learning task we used we found that mold inhalation depressed two of the three stages in neuron birth and maturation. Non-toxic mold spores significantly decreased numbers of immature neurons born in the hippocampus. Toxic mold spores, on the other hand, significantly inhibited the final stage of maturation of new neurons. In mice treated with either non-toxic or toxic spores, the number of new neurons which matured was related to numbers of cells expressing IL-1-beta. The more hippocampal cells expressed I O one beta the fewer new neurons matured. As we expected, there were many strong correlations between measures of brain inflammation and measures of behavioral dysfunction. This suggested that mold-induced brain inflammation is likely responsible for the behavioral dysfunction, though at this point it's only a correlational relationship. In the toxic spore group, long-term contextual memory was correlated with numbers of activated immune cells in the hippocampus. The more activated immune cells a mouse had, the worse his long-term memory. The behavior of both spore-treated groups, both the toxic and the non-toxic spores, on the auditory cue learning task and during training on the spatial memory task was strongly correlated with numbers of hippocampal cells expressing I O one beta. There were more numerous and stronger correlations between measures of inflammation and behavior in mice treated with toxic spores than in those treated with non-toxic spores. Control mice had lower levels of brain inflammation and had no significant correlations between brain inflammation and behavior. Take for example, you cut your finger and it gets infected. Well, that causes the innate immune system to release cytokines at the point of injury. And the cytokines ultimately get to the brain where it causes the most common immune cells in the brain, the microglia, to release cytokines in the brain. And what that does is cause sickness behavior. And it's thought to have evolved to help the animal resolve this, whatever the pathogen challenge is, to be successful in in resolving it. And sickness behavior is really easy to, to figure out, to think about what it entails. Just think about the last time you had the flu. So there's fever, everything aches, you're tired, you don't wanna eat, you withdraw from social interactions. And there's also cognitive problems because of issues with learning and memory. It can cause emotional problems like depression. So it seemed that gave me a way in to say, okay, mold can do this by, if it initiates the same sort of innate immune response and that's what it does. The innate immune system has receptors for mold, just like it has receptors for bacteria and viruses. And so when you inhale the mold, that gets the whole system started because it causes, it, it causes a strong immune reaction in the lungs. And that's pretty quickly transmitted to the brain where it starts this whole cycle of sickness behavior.
0: So this prolonged activation of the immune system, is that is what is causing this like traumatic brain injury, the neurological issues?
1: Yes, it, it's. It's the release of the cytokines in the brain if you can block the, blood, the, the cytokines in the brain from from being secreted you can stop the problem
0: have you ever heard of mold rage it seems to be very popular within the mold community and I, i'm curious is I, I wonder if this is the explanation for mold rage is this this activation this cytokine maybe storm in the brain i'm not sure if i'm describing that right. correctly. That makes people behave in such strange ways. I and mean, so that this seems to happen a lot with, within the mold community.
1: That I haven't, have not heard of. I mean, there's, there's really strong evidence linking sickness behavior to depression, but there's no reason why if it affects one emotion, why not others?
0: Exactly. Exactly. We've ran through the gamut. I mean, I've been exposed myself and I'm a hypersensitive individual and, it manifests for me in what you just described as depression, anxiety. Some people even get suicidal thoughts. Um, it, it's it's a pretty crazy arena when you think about just simple inhalation of the substance. This is can cause so many psychological issues.
1: Well, part of the reason I, I had such trouble with the whole issue of how, how mold could cause these problems was when I was in graduate school, we were taught that the brain was immune-privileged the brain and the immune system were, they they just were independent of each other. They had no interaction. And now we know it's exactly the opposite. The immune system actually governs the development of the brain. Your brain goes through a period of really fast growth where there are too many neurons, too many connections, and then they get pruned. What's the immune system that does that pruning? And to learn anything, your individual neurons have to be very carefully pruned. So the, the pathways you need get strengthened and the pathways you don't need get eliminated. Well, the immune system is responsible for that. So you get mold sticking its little fingers in there and taking away the wrong synapses, you're in trouble.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great, great distinction. And, you know, science is always evolving and it's really interesting to, to see that they are paired, you know, they, they do affect one another. And, um, I just wanted to go, since we're on the topic, pretty much of your, your paper of, um, inhaling mold and, and what it does to the innate immune activation and all the emotional dysfunction it causes now in your paper, we thought it was really interesting that you found that the non-toxic spores and the fragments were also capable of causing this type of reaction in the body. Can you maybe just talk about your study?
1: Okay. So at the time I started this research, most people who thought that mold had an effect on behavior or on your health in, in total, blamed it on the toxins. And the reason for that is that there are only three medically accepted ways for mold to affect human health. You know, it could be an allergy, it could be an infection, or it could be toxicity. Um, There were not uh, not other things. So a lot of emphasis was put on the ability of toxins to to wreak havoc with human health. And that's true because the toxins really interfere with Mm -hmm. cell function and and Stachybotrys toxins have been shown to kill human cells. But on the other hand, people who looked at the effects of fungus mold on lung function found that the non-toxic, just the skeleton of the mold could have effects. And the reason for this is that the innate immune system has receptors that recognize different components that make up the fungal skeleton. It also has these sorts of receptors for uh, bacterial cell walls. The general idea is that over time we evolved receptors to very common threats in the environment. And so while we might not have a receptor for stachybotrys, we have a receptor for components of the skeletal wall that that are common to a whole variety of fungi. It's not like the adaptive immune system where you develop an antibody to a specific target. This is a a specific target, but it's a target that's shared with a lot of challenges. So we were interested, because they'd shown that these non-toxic spores caused inflammation in lung tissue. So we were interested in finding out whether they could also cause changes in brain function and behavior. So our basic setup was to have three experimental groups. We had a group that got toxic stachybotrys spores, the whole thing. It's viable. It can infect. It's got toxins. Then we had a second group that got non-toxic spore skeletons. We just took the toxic spores, extracted them twice with alcohol, and that removes the toxins. And it also denatures proteins. It means that The enzymes and other compounds that are inside the spore can't have an effect anymore. It terminates their biological activity. And then the third group just got the carrier vehicle that we put the spores in to administer them to the mice. So the mice came into the laboratory. They were there for a couple of weeks to get used to the lab setup, to be used to being handled because of all the behavioral tests and uh, treatments, um, just to get everything on a so they're, they're comfortable with the situation. And then they had three weeks of spore treatment where they, three times a week, the one group got um, the toxic spores, one group got the non-toxic spores and one group just got the control treatment. Um, and these group were, the mice were assigned to the groups totally at random. And the whole way we ran the experiment, none of the people who were running the mice knew which groups they were in. So it was all run blind, so our expectations could not shape the outcome. Um, So after three weeks of just being treated and sitting in their home cages, they started on behavioral tests. um, And they went through a whole battery of tests. And we ran this in small groups of mice because we wanted to be able to control. There's a lot of circadian rhythmicity um, to the way the brain and behavior function. So we wanted to make sure that all the mice could be uh, have their behavioral tests in a small window of time in the morning. So that was always comparable. And all the treatments were in a small window of time in the afternoon after testing. Um, so that was always comparable. And then we uh, put the data from three groups together to, to do the analysis. Um, so one of the first things we thought was that um, these microglia, these immune cells in the brain we might be able to detect differences in um, their function by the shape of the cells, because usually microglia have very small cell bodies and long extensions that they use to to check around them to see if there are any danger signals coming, anything the immune system should pay attention to. And when there is that sort of um, immune challenge, they typically pull in their extensions, the cell body gets really fat and they lose some of the extensions. Those are called amoeboid, um, the, the, first, the, health, the ones in the healthy brain are called ramified and the ones that are meeting some sort of challenge are called amoeboid. And we thought we'd have more amoeboid um, microglia in the uh, spore-treated animals, but we didn't. Um, we w- then went on to look at levels of um, a cytokine called in leukin one beta, and this is really important. It's the first thing, the first cytokine, one of the first cytokines to be released in response to mold, and it's really important in um, a number of inflammatory things. It causes fever, for example. Um, so we looked for the amount of inflammation, in the, the number of cells that were expressing um, I, the short name for it is IL one beta in in that. Uh, Hippocampus, And we looked at the hippocampus because this is a, an area of the brain that's been shown to be affected in mold-exposed individuals, and it's also an, an area that's in, affected in animals showing sickness behavior. And it's important for learning and memory. So it's been shown that when the hippocampus is affected by sickness behavior, the animals cannot learn tasks, so they don't remember the tasks that they learned. And we found that in fact, animals treated with toxic spores had significantly higher levels of IL-1 beta cells in their hippocampus than the control animals. The animals with the non-toxic spores were somewhere in between. They were higher than vehicle, but it wasn't a significant difference. So when we started looking at the behavior, the first test we looked at was contextual memory. It's called the conditioned fear task. And what happens in the conditioned fear task is that animals put in an apparatus which has a specific wallpaper on some pattern on the walls that the mouse that stands out. And it's got a grid floor. Um, it's, the Mouse is allowed to explore the area for two minutes. And then a little, an auditory tone comes on for 30 seconds. During the last 15 seconds, the animal gets one brief, mild foot shock. And then you record its activity for the next minute. And then it's put back in its home cage, 30 minutes, And 24 hours later, it's put back in the apparatus, but it isn't shocked. But if it remembers that it was shocked the first time, it won't move as much because mice, when they're fearful, tend to freeze. And then at 25 hours, it's put back in the apparatus, but now the apparatus has been changed. It changed the wallpaper. So it's a distinctively different pattern from the initial one. And the floor is now not a grid floor. You've put in plastic over, a solid piece of plastic over the grid floor. So there's nothing in there that should alarm the mouse. The mouse is in there for two minutes, nothing happens. And then the tone comes on, the same tone it heard the first time. No shock, just the tone. And you see if the animal remembers the, the tone uh, by moving less in the next minute. So th- the point of this is that typically with sickness behavior, um, you need the hippocampus to show you need a functioning a well functioning hippocampus to show that you remember the context so animals that have had their hippocampus removed can't remember what the wallpaper looks like they don't remember that this is a scary place but they do remember the auditory signal loud sounds are uh, associated with a lot of fear inducing stimuli um, like thunder and lightning So it's an older circuit. It doesn't require the hippocampus to make that fine tuned adjustment. So what we found was that the vehicle mice, they remembered the context, they didn't move in in the two tests where you put them in the the usual apparatus and they remembered the tone, but the animals that were treated with spores had no idea. 30 minutes after they they had received that first shot, You put them back in the context and they don't remember it. They're not afraid, they move around. They're perfectly happy. 24 hours later, they're they're even worse. They're moving around even more. But at hour 25, they remember the auditory tone. So when that tone is sounded, they stop moving. So as we expected, the um, spore-treated mice, both the toxic spores and the non-toxic spores, showed memory deficits in the contextual memory task, but not in the auditory cue induced task. But what we weren't expecting was the non-toxic spores had just as much effect as the toxic spores. We repeated this with an older group of mice, and we didn't get any effect on contextual memory. But we did get an effect on auditory cued memory. In the older mice, the spore-treated mice had no problems with contextual memory. But when they got to the auditory cue, they actually showed increased fear of the auditory cue. They moved less than the vehicle treated mice. And this isn't a common finding for innate immune activated animals, but it is a common finding for animals that are stressed. And certainly being given mold spores three times a week is something that's stressful for the animal. So we, we think that that explains why that
2: happened. Yeah, this, this sounds like it's very much based on Dancer and Kelly's 2005 work on sickness behavior. Very much. Did you actually correspond with uh, Robert Dancer? As part of
1: doing this research, I became a member of, of the Psychoneuroimmunological Research Society, which he founded. Um, and so I, I saw him and talked with him at meetings, but their work That's was me. definitely something that set me up to do this line of research.
2: Have you seen this book, the 1994 International Proceedings Manual of the Saratoga Springs Conference? No. It's a neat little history of Stachybotrys, how during um, World War II, it's the famous story of Stalin's horses, where uh, Stalin's cavalry horses were dying mysteriously. And Stalin suspected sabotage. This was a story told by Nikita Khrushchev, who was uh, sort of a high-ranking minister at the time. And he related that Stalin was so fearful of sabotage that he threatened to have all the veterinarians and people handling the horses uh, lined up in front of a firing squad if they didn't figure out why his horses were dying. And they quickly, with a little motivation, discovered that it was that toxic mold in the hay, the uh, fusarium and stachybotrys. And this was the direct lead-in to study into the toxicity of these these black molds. And of course, the Soviets decided to see if they could turn it into a biological weapon. Makes sense. And they found that when they purified the, the toxins, the satratoxin, It didn't have the desired effect that um, they didn't do the denuded uh, stacky skeleton experiment. But they found that if it was the purified toxin without the associated structure, you didn't get the full inflammatory effect. So one could uh, infer just by the, the lack of effect by the mycotoxin alone that there was some sort of effect associated with the structure itself, Joseph Forgax, who's sort of the godfather of the mold movement, pointed this out and said, this is an observation that requires elucidation. But of course, without funding, it didn't really go any further. But it's amazing how the uh, pulmonary hemorrhage and the effects of jacubotris were noted during World War II and this was the first time that the effects were described in horses, but not so much in humans. So what, uh, what led you to take an interest in stachybotrys? It was, it was the most
1: researched of the molds. And also, the, my work is very much based on the work of Dor Dearborn. So he actually supplied the mold. So the, 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 our, the mold we used was from a house in Cleveland. Holy, well, that's amazing. And uh, he was the one who, who who started using this protocol of looking at the non-toxic skeleton versus the spore,
2: the intact uh, spore. So he and Ruth Etzel made that observation of the famous 1994 Cleveland pulmonary infant um, hemorrhage. The, they confused it with sudden infant death syndrome, but it wasn't the same as SIDS because they had the bleeding lung disease. Right. And Ruth Etzel, after an extensive investigation looking for factors in these houses where the babies were uh, passing from pulmonary hemorrhage, isolated Stachybotrys atra, as it was known at the time, later to be renamed Stachybotrys charterum, so they could confuse things as much as possible. But um, the uh, observation that Stachybotrys could result in pulmonary hemorrhage set off a huge chain reaction in the Center for Disease Control, they took it very seriously. And for a while there, the dreaded black mold became all the rage. I mean, it was huge news. And it was taken very seriously. And the, um, all the studies seemed to confirm that stachybotrys could result in pulmonary hemorrhage. Now I'm wondering if part of the reason why it sort of fell into discredit later is because they were trying to reproduce these experiments using pur- purified toxin and not looking at the total effect of the, the mycotoxin plus its associated skeleton.
1: Plus, in, in, in water damaged buildings, it's not just stachybotrys. It's a whole melange of bacteria and other fungi and um, particles, and, and there's lots of research that shows very well that the more things you add into the mix, the worse things get. So if you just look at the effect of a bacteria alone, a fungus alone, particle alone, they each have a small effect, but when you put them together, it's not additive, it's synergistic. They have an effect that's bigger than the sum of the parts. Um, And that makes it's what makes the mold issue so very difficult to work with um, because we're so bad at measuring it. There's so many things to consider. What else might be there, and it's just very difficult to do.
2: And we can't exactly do human
1: studies, can we? No, but that's why I was so surprised that there were no animal studies. You know, because, but it's difficult to do. To, I mean, to really do this correctly, you need to have a germ warfare setup, a germ warfare lab.
2: Exactly. So you're not infecting everybody who's trying to run the research. This book uh, actually describes that when stachybotrys first came to public attention, so little was known about it that they thought it was pretty much uh, like any other mold, just an allergy. And people who were concerned about stachybotrys in particular in sick buildings actually went and inhaled it to see what would happen. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Fortunately, they all survived but it definitely taught them a a little bit about the power of this particular mold. Right. They decided not to reproduce the experiment. So that's, I guess, a reason why it's so difficult to find any studies on it, because in order to do so, you'd have have to look at the human effects and um, it's unethical to set that up. So we're actually prevented by procedures from doing the very kind of studies we need to establish the toxicity of this particular mold? Well, you could do it. And even doing it in animals is difficult because I worked with spores
1: because with spores, there was some safety. The spores are relatively large. So, and they're relatively heavy. So they tend to fall down. So if you have animals in ventilated caging, you you have the spores under control. But the real problem that humans face isn't the spores, it's the fragments. The fragments are much more numerous. They're much more dangerous. They can get into the brain directly as you inhale them, as can the toxins. So toxins and spore fragments, nanoparticles, immediately can go right into the brain as you inhale them. So yes, they're causing inflammation in the lungs, but they're also causing inflammation in the brain. And they get directly into the blood supply. So now they're being circulated throughout the body, affecting not just the lungs. So this <laughs> it's
2: just an ever-increasing problem. Yeah, and uh, Dor Dearborn spent the rest of his career collecting anecdotal evidence about po- more cases of pulmonary hemorrhage in association with stachybotrys. It apparently, he found more evidence all over the place, wherever he looked. But of course, there, you can't do an official study on it so it remained just observations
1: right well the one thing at least i was able to do with my research was to show in animals with a defined stimulus we know exactly what was in you know what the toxic what dose of toxic spores each of the mice got what dose of non-toxic spores that spore exposure was able to cause brain inflammation the toxic spores always cause more inflammation than the non-toxic spores but non-toxic spores cause inflammation too and then levels of inflammation in the brain were associated
2: with the memory deficits that we saw so we've we've got the inflammatory response from the stachybotry skeletons the protein synthesis from the mycotoxins and then the nanoparticle effect where they can penetrate directly into the brain right so i I think the effects would have been worse if you
1: know we've been able to use fragments, but we couldn't because I don't have a a germ warfare lab set up to do that.
2: Dora Dearborn sent me an article on um, pulmonary arterial remodeling as a result of stachybotrys exposure. It looks like there's some long-term arterial remodeling that also affects our overall oxygen uptake. Sounds very likely. Well, we're trying to figure out why after stachybotrys exposure, people fail to recover. Well, part of it is immune priming. It, once you've been exposed
1: to mold, once, once you've been exposed to any pathogen, it tends to prime the immune system so that animals that are exposed to bacterial infection early in life react more strongly to the same stimulus as adults than animals that weren't exposed as, as, while they were developing. And th- this has been shown for people, that people who've been exposed to mold once have different, have stronger, different responses from people who've never been exposed.
2: The entire industry of mold treatment right now is based on binders and removal of mold toxins with the expectation that if you can get your toxin load down, that's it, you're guaranteed to recover from that exposure. But what you're telling me here is that a lot of it might be immune programming, so that even theoretically, if all toxins were removed, the programming would still remain what well, that's the problem with epigenetics.
1: <laughs> you, you come in with one program and then the program changes. We don't know enough at this point about how to get back to health. Pro- it's part of the problem with getting older is your immune system gets primed by challenges you faced in your life. And these set you up for the degenerative diseases of aging.
2: And you have to figure out how to get by, how to re- try to reverse that. So that's what we desperately need to find out is, can we have an expectation of recovery by removal of mold toxins, or do we have to study how much of it is the lingering immune programming? Right. And that's the issue because the,
1: the, the immune system is so important in modulating brain function. So if it's made changes to your brain program, you know, are you going to be able to
2: change it back? This... Um, Poster behind me is a bit of a compilation of the early history of mold effects on humans. With the first time the uh, trichothecine black mold effect was reported in the human health literature by Dr. William Croft in 1986. This was essentially the first time that MDs had an opportunity to see something in their literature, not, not in the veterinary literature, as Ruth Etzel. You know, that's where she had to get her information from, was uh, there was nothing in the human literature, only the veterinary literature. So from 1986, for the first time, uh, there was a report on a family in Chicago that was exposed to stachybotrys and the types of health effects and immune dysfunction that, was, that they had measured. And this came to the attention of a um, hospital in Quebec where a whole bunch of medical staff became ill. in Epstein-Barr virus reactivation, strange fungal infections, bacterial problems that did not resolve. And the only thing they could find, similar to what Ruth Etzel observed, was the presence of stachybotrys. And it seemed like stachybotrys stood out from other molds, because in all the cases of aspergillus, penicillium, cladosporium, all the the common molds, people generally had an expectation of recovery when they were removed from the environment or it was adequately remediated. But in this case, a high percentage, somewhere between 10 and 15% of these medical professionals did not recover even after they were taken out of the stachybotrys environment. So it seemed like uh, stachybotrys really stood out as doing something over and above the other molds. Do you find that to be the case?
1: I don't know. I've only looked at stachybotrys. Um, so I, I have no idea about the various the strengths of um, and, and the effects of the di- of different molds. The, the, the issues I wanted to, to look at were could mold cause change, changes in brain inflammation, and it does. Did non-toxic spores have an effect? And they do. So this means that there has to be another way and this innate immune activation provides a a mechanism to explain how mold can have effects that don't require an allergy, that don't require an infection and don't require toxicity um, because you get this innate immune activation. And overall the toxic spores are much more inflammatory and the, and the correlations between the degree of inflammation in the brain and the degree of deficit in behavior we saw deficits on two learning tasks. We saw increases in anxiety-like behavior, but that was only in animals given the non-toxic spores. This is one point, our expectation going into this was that like what Dearborn had found in the lung tissue, that the, the toxic spores would always have more serious effects than the non-toxic spores but that was not the case. On some of our behavioral tasks, the non-toxic spores caused bigger effects and spatial learning. Mice couldn't remember for 24 hours where the platform was if they were given non-toxic spores. And the animals given toxic spores actually performed better on that task. But we think it was because of a very strange phenomenon that the toxic spores that induced fever and animals that that, are, that show innate immune activation actually appreciate, they want to be in a, a, a temperature that's seven degrees higher, seven degrees Celsius higher than unaffected mice. So we think that the, the water temperature was, t- they the, the mice given the toxic spores experienced water temperature as being much um, colder than the other mice did. And cold water makes mice want to get out of the pool so they remember. That's a, that's a well-known effect. So animals that are innate, immune activated, if they're in warm water, they don't learn the task, but if they're in really cold water, they do. And we think the toxic spore mice just thought the water was really cold and they needed to get out so that their motivation was um, affected that way. So the toxic spores always cause more brain problems, but on a particular behavior test, they might not cause what we would see as a deficit.
2: Well, the uh, Dancer and Kelly work seemed to be a direct lead into Edward Chanasse's um, 2007 paper on depression in people in water-damaged buildings. He did this study out of uh, Brown University. Just uh, anecdotal, looking at the rates of depression in highly water-damaged buildings, and there was a striking correlation. So it seems like uh, with these fragments that you refer to, we could have an overall depressive response. And that's the primary manifestation of the water damage building. But then the subset of the immune dysfunction and microglial programming of the stachybotrys and tricothecine mycotoxins. Did you see that uh, paper by uh, uh, Ed Shenasa about the depression? No, no but there's, there's a lot of work
1: now linking innate immune activation
2: to depression, sickness behavior leading into depression. Yeah, so that depression response, that could even be considered the principal sign of a water damaged building. Even before the depression is anxiety, I think. Mm. Anxiety comes first. Yeah. In fact, uh, I, I uh, put a paper in the British Medical Journal saying that I believe that uh, anxiety and the depression response is nature's way of telling you to get out. <laughs> Makes sense. So when we look at it from that point of view, uh, what psychiatrists consider to be uh, a needless and unwarranted f- fear might actually be a natural warning system of the body and a useful indicator to this type of exposure. You're so good, Eric. I just love to comment. <laughs> <laughs> really good thoughts. This is a great conversation. Well, that's, that's what we really need to find out. Is depression mm-hmm. the product of an uncontrolled emotional re- reaction? Or is it actually nature's warning to a water damaged building? I think if psychiatrists were educated, maybe they could tell the difference and warn people that if you haven't had any emotional stress in your life and nothing in particular changed, but you just go into a certain building and start to feel an emotional response, suspect the building. And it's not just buildings. It's
1: um, I worked in New York for, New York City for a long time. And you go into some of the subway stations and they are oh. filled with mold. Oh, that, yeah. That they, they've gotten um, around that a little bit because you used to be able to see it. You look up at the ceiling and you see the black spots. Sure. Now
2: they're painting the ceilings black. Oh, so. brilliant, brilliant. Well, you know, I, I suggested to uh, behavioral uh, experts that they set up cameras in subway stations and the entrance to moldy buildings. Because I believe that you can actually see a change in people's demeanor as they enter the bad zone. I mean, people, you know, kind of close up and they hunch over and they they just look anxious and depressed. You can actually see, I mean, if you look over time at how people behave, some people will turn around and run. So we could probably do a study without the people being aware that they're even part of a a study. Yeah, to get that past
1: the. the the, the human subjects committee, but that would be a fairly easy one to
2: do, I think. Well, I I remember that somebody tried to get a study on the uh, use of household insecticides, and it was by no means advising them to use more or less or do anything else. It was just a questionnaire to ask them about how do you use, you know, Raid or various you know pesticides around the house. Just, and they couldn't get an IRB because. Just the very fact of asking could influence their behavior, so it was disallowed on that on that, those grounds. But uh, a camera at the entrance to a moldy building that wouldn't be influencing their behavior in any way. They wouldn't even know the camera was there. Yeah, but that, that well, it's not
1: my area, but it's what's considered public space and what's not considered public space and is part of it. Hmm. Because if it's not considered public space, then if you're in public space, then you,
2: well, it's not my ears. <laughs> well, I, I set myself up at the entrance to an extremely bad building. And I thought I could see a change in behaviors, especially when people turn and walk away from the front door to walk all the way around the building to use the, the side entrance. Hmm. So then I would uh, chase after him and I would ask him, why did you do that? And they'd go, well, everybody knows this building is bad and the front of it is terrible. So of course I'm going to use the back door.
0: Dr. Harding, I just wanted to reaffirm what you had mentioned earlier. And um, in, in your research, you noted that the mice exemplified more anxiety-like behaviors from the non-toxic spores versus the toxic spores. Right. Is that correct? Right.
1: And I have no explanation for that. Um, Sometimes when you get a finding that that you don't expect, you can come up with a hypothesis to explain it. This one I can't.
2: I I believe Bill Sorensen speculated in the 1994 manual that it was the beta-glucans, that uh, the portions of the wall, the sugars are especially inflammatory. Perhaps... This was a commonality of many different fungal species. That it was the the actual fragments that was setting up, setting the stage for the inflammation, which would be associated with the uh, emotional responses, but also helps defeat the lungs' defenses so that some of these toxins can get through. Just just anecdotally, and of course, I have no proof for this, it's just a, a theory that the inflammatory response from these fragments causes a a greater need for oxygen. So you actually let down your guard. The lungs have to compensate a little bit. So they try to uh, allow more oxygen to get through. And in so doing, allow other organic volatile compounds to get into the blood as well, which of course would cause people to blame the associated formaldehyde or whatever volatile thing is in their environment, rather than the fragments which set the stage for this whole thing. I mean, we've been able to show that
1: um, mold does in fact cause brain inflammation. We've been able to show that mold does in fact cause behavioral changes, problems with learning and memory, problems with anxiety. Um, We've been able to show that the brain inflammation is related there, there are correlations between the degree of brain inflammation and the degree of the behavioral problems the animals have.
3: Dr. Harding, can I ask a question about the brain inflammation? Sure. Is it considered to be like a swelling or a fluid? Or do is there any information on, on the substance that causes the inflammation?
1: So it's the cytokines that cause the inflammation. It's the, the innate immune system releasing these chemicals. And the, the IO1 beta that I studied is one that's generally considered to be primarily pro-inflammatory. Um, so it causes fever. It's, it's a, it causes increased uh, sensitivity to pain. When you talk about w- what is really the inflammation, well, there are different effects on different cells. It depends on, on what you're talking about. And that's outside my bailiwick. Uh, I'm, my, my strength is in looking at the connection between brain function and behavioral function.
3: I understand. Thank you.
1: With what I was saying before, with we've got the inflammation, we've got the behavioral changes, we've got the relationship between the two. We've shown that toxic spores do have an effect and they can be just as serious an effect at, as the toxic spores, um, which I think is important because I, I really think My um, takeaway is that it's everything you're exposed to. (laughs) Your your symptoms are are the result of all of the the exposures you have, whether it's mold, bacteria, uh, whatever.
2: Yeah, uh, Dr. Shoemaker is delving into that with the associated actinomycetes, where he's basically calling um, his chronic inflammatory response syndrome sort of a toxic soup of fungi and bacteria and fragments. Just the whole mess. I think that's what it is. So I think we really have to put
1: mold on. And I'm afraid with with COVID, now everything is, we were starting to get a little bit of response toward chronic fatigue. And now that's going to go down the drain because everybody's focused on long-term COVID. Yeah, though, the one thing that the one bright spot there may be that it would share some same mechanisms as chronic fatigue. So if they find what the mechanisms for long COVID are, we will find the the same mechanisms in
2: chronic fatigue and in mold related illness. Absolutely. And with so much uh, research going on into COVID. Yeah, hopefully all this will come out. Dr. Fauci even talked about that. He said, uh, by studying COVID, we're going to learn a lot about chronic fatigue. I think so. Um, I, I very much hope
1: so. And I think you, your listeners already know about the problems with trying to measure mold and, and what your mold exposure has been. Because the, the, the tests are so bad. They're usually short term. They're usually limited areas. If they're using the spore test, the, the They're looking for viable spores. Well, viable spores are not the only spores that are there. There are a lot of non-viable spores. What viable spores will grow depends on what methodology the lab uses. Um, A lot of molds don't even grow well in the lab, at least with the things they've tried so far.
2: And and one thing that uh, really alters is how the, the mold colonies can put out just a flurry of many, many more times their normal production during change in the weather. Right. Have you noticed that? Like sometimes you go into the subway and uh, there's a storm coming and it just feels absolutely horrible. Oppressive. I found found that uh, change in the weather phenomenon to be so fascinating that I always ask people about that.
0: What I think is really interesting about your research too is that just by studying Stachybotrys the toxicity portion of it and the non, non-toxic non portion of it. It's just so interesting that um, the the findings that you've found, the innate immune activation, the neurological issues, the cognitive, the emotional issues, this is what we see in our patient population every single day. And it's so interesting that it's just by singling out stachybotrys and doing research and showing this, it's like, wow. I mean, the power of one mold can produce so much and so many effects in people. Right. Well, the
1: the issue with the toxic mold is there's just so much there. I mean, because one mold can produce like 90 different chemicals. (laughs) And and you've got the VOCs, you've got the toxins, you've got everything And and the enzymes, like the one that causes the hemorrhaging. For the immune system to have evolved to just focus in on the fungal DNA, the fungal carbohydrates that are in the skeleton, and to make a receptor just for that. But there are at least 19 receptors that recognize fungal, any type of fungal tissue, the fungal skeleton. So it's they're recognizing either the, the carbohydrates that make up the skeleton or the RNA or the DNA. And how you respond depends on, or how the immune system responds depends on how many of the receptors are activated and how they interact with one another. That's why we we always expected that the toxic spores would cause much greater effects than the non-toxic spores. Because with the non-toxic spores, you just have the cell wall and that's it. Whereas with the toxic spores, you have this whole plethora of chemicals most of which have adverse effects on normal cell function um, when people are exposed to them. So it's, it's not easy to explain why sometimes the non-toxic spores seem to be doing more than, than the, the toxic spores. But the point is, it's just one behavioral test. So you look at the animal, so on that test, it's doing okay, but on the
2: other test, it's not doing well at all. Yeah, just, just the fact that you made that observation that it's the non-toxic spores that stand out. I mean, that flies in the face of what everybody thinks about toxic mold. So obviously we have to focus in on that, find out why this is happening. Yeah, I think that overall the,
1: the toxic mold has a much worse effect on, on, the, on a person or an animal. But what would be interesting would, would be to see, you know, in a normal situation when, when the, if the mice are, are living by themselves in a colony and you've got infected ones, you've got ones that are exposed to non-toxic spores versus the colony that are exposed to toxic spores, see how what would happen to the colony as a whole um, when they're not being spoon fed their diet and everything else and they have to compete for food.
0: You know, one portion that I, um, that I was really interested in and I, I don't know if this is something that you looked into when you completed your study, but there's this, um, notion that is going around within the the mold injured community that people are getting sick because they have a genetic susceptibility right um, hladr gene um do you find validity in this i mean you did mention something in regards to epigenetics earlier so i'm assuming these substances actually have the ability to to turn on or off genes within our body it's not necessarily that we're predisposed
1: Right, I always believed Dr. Shoemaker was on that. And now I'm starting to wonder. It makes sense because when I talked to other scientists at um, meetings about this, they said, okay, that those are the same immune system genes that make you susceptible to a whole bunch of auto-inflammatory events. So if you have those, if you have long-term exposure, that's what seems to happen is you have auto inflammation, you've got the immune system attacking your own body. So it's, there's now research saying that mold exposure plays a role in Alzheimer's disease, um, other forms of dementia, ALS, MS, and of course chronic fatigue. So, and in all of those, you, you tend to have um, autoantibodies
2: of some kind. When Dr. Shoemaker unleashed with his HLA-DR susceptibility theory, I was concerned because, you know, I got sick in a stachybotrys building, and so did my cat. And my cat doesn't even have human leukocyte antigens. And I'm going, even if there is a genetic susceptibility inherent in the human population, if you focus on that, you kind of miss out on, well, this stuff is bad. It'll make anybody sick, anything sick. Right, well,
1: one of the things that I found in, in my research was that individual mice responded differently to the mold. I mean, one of the things we could always count on was the variability in the mold-treated groups, the variability in behavior in the mold-treated groups would be bigger than the variability in behavior in the control group. So that what that means is that despite the mold treatment, some animals were able to soldier through and give good responses. they were able to learn something. Um, In the Morris water maze, they remembered where the platform was. Um, But others just went to pieces and and had real difficulty completing a behavioral task. And this is in, you know, I was using strain of inbred mice, so these are supposed to be all genetically identical yet they're showing individual differences. Well, why are they showing individual differences if they're genetically identical? Another thing we found that I haven't reported yet that I have to work on is every, almost every behavioral measure we took was, and the animal's response on that behavioral test was dependent on their body weight. Now, these are all, they're not obese. They're not underweight. They're all within normal range for, adult mice of this strain. Yet every mouse's behavior was somehow related to what their weight
2: was at the time of testing. Interesting. Because I've, I've heard that uh, one of the measures in chronic fatigue and in illness that is kind of off the charts is leptin signaling. And uh, leptin is the enzyme that controls the movement of fats in and out of the cells. So maybe it's kind of dependent on how the, the, the mice are mobilizing the toxins.
1: Right. Yeah, it's, it's something that
2: always fascinated me because be, behavioral
1: researchers have been getting a lot of criticism for the inability to reproduce studies. When a different lab does it, the results come out differently. But they're assuming that if you're all getting mice from the same vendor, it's the same mice. And it's their differences, just the, the experience of the mice being shipped to the laboratory causes stress. And depending on how far they have to be shipped and how they're shipped, depending on which vendor you're buying from, this affects the the masses' behavior.
3: Can I ask you a question about the mice weight?
1: You can, I don't know if I'll be able to answer, but I'll try.
3: What were the correlations that they were seeing based on weight? Was it like the heavier mice, like had less symptoms or? Was, was there like was there like a general way that it went with the weight
1: it depended on the measure for some for some measures it was better being a heavier mouse and for some measures it was better being
3: a lighter mouse Oh interesting so it wasn't consistent It wasn't consistent Thank you one of the things they're really focusing in on uh,
2: chronic fatigue syndrome research is changes in the intestinal microbiota that somehow populations of gut flora and how they respond to the environment and whatever you eat and toxins passing through, that that's a determining factor. They, they haven't figured out any correlations yet, but that's a strong area of research. I wonder if it's differences in the intestinal microbiota in the mice. Oh yeah, and that's part of the issue um, because
1: different, some vendors were actually killing off all the mice's normal microbiome and giving them a special diet as infants so that they would get a certain, so that all the mice coming from that vendor have had their microbiome manipulated, uh, which is something I didn't realize until uh, um, there was a paper about it at one of the, t- the meetings I went to, because um, once, once again, they were trying to figure out what was, because we, we tried to do everything, trying to get everything, because we were doing this in stages, um, we tried to get our mice always from the same, not on, just the same strain from the same vendor, but from the same room at the vendor. And that actually turned out to, to sometimes be impossible. But, but one of the things we found is when they changed rooms, the mice behaved differently. So for a while, we had every, every mouse that came in learned the water maze task. So 100% of mice learned the water maze task. And then the experiments I reported on Um, In that article, only 83% of the mice learned the task, and the others just, they they just sit in the water. They, no, I I don't need to get to the escape platform. (laughs) It's fine. Incredible.
2: This science is tricky stuff. Just when you think you've got something nailed, a confounder jumps up. Oh, it, it always surprises
1: you. You, you go in predicting one thing and you come out saying, okay, it didn't turn out that way. How in the world do I ever figure out what in the world caused
2: that? Oh, this and is incredibly, incredibly important information. I mean, this is looking at mold in a whole new way. Right.
3: So it sounds like they're measuring inflammatory markers. So is that the case? They're measuring the markers of what this inflammation is doing and not literally finding mold spores in people's brains. Do I understand that correctly?
1: Okay, so with our research with mice, we were actually measuring what goes on in the brain. With the only things I've seen in, in people in terms of looking at it are when, when they do post-mortems. So they've found um, mold spores or mold Components in the brains of Alzheimer patients.
3: Mm, so not necessarily spores, but like a metabolite or a chemical or something produced. Something off.
1: that's definitely that's definitely from a fungus.
3: Interesting. Thank you so much.
1: And and that was really interesting because they they looked at how it developed in the brain, and, and they they think that it's following the, the root coming in the, through the nose going directly into the brain and getting from the nose to further and further away in the brain. So, so the, the research they did said, suggested that that was the path it took. So there it was inhalation of mold that was getting into the brain. That's the only one where I know. So does that I remember mean that they've actually seen evidence of mold in, in um, a human brain that, with certain problems. So, it
3: sounds like there is some evidence of mold crossing the blood brain barrier into the nose from the nasal cavity.
1: Mold spores can't make it through that route. But if you have fragments, what are called, you know, nanoparticles, the really tiny particles, they go directly up the olfactory nerve and into the brain. Um, so, toxins can use that route, and nanoparticles of mold skeleton can use that route. Um, and they get both directly into the brain and directly into the blood supply via that route. Wow, I mean, it's it's been shown for I don't know that it's actually been shown for nanoparticles of mold, but it's been shown for nanoparticles of every, every other variety. So um, it, there's a lot of work on this on air pollution um, and looking at the role of nanoparticles in air pollution and how dangerous that is to human health. Mm-hmm. So mold is just another source of nanoparticles. Because, oh, this is
2: incredibly amazing stuff, and we've got to get this information out to the medical community so they can start thinking about mold in these terms. Yeah,
1: they really need to. It's, people can just read one journal article about the effects of mold on people. I, I always point them toward the, the Kilburn 2009 article where he describes 105 mold patients versus 100 chemically exposed individuals versus 100 controls. And he showed so many changes, you know, problems with vision, problems with balance, problems with reflex speed, problems with emotions, problems with cognition. And it wasn't just self reports, this was all he measured this in, in all these people. And it's, it's a large enough sample. Um, he's used good statistics. And if that doesn't convince you, I don't know what will.
0: <laughs> this is such a great conversation. My mind is so blown right now. <laughs>
2: Same here. This okay. is just incredible. This is fabulous. I think this stuff. is
0: probably the most incredible conversation that we've had. We, mind you, Doctor Doctor Harding, we've done over hundred plus interviews. I think this is the most important conversation that we've had in the hundred plus interviews that we've that we've had. So I mean, um, that blows however, me away
1: because I, I've listened to some of them and they they've been I've been learned a lot. So we we also showed that it causes an increase in pain sensitivity, which is something that I thought was important because pain is such an issue for mold exposed people. Wow, so there, there's your connection to fibromyalgia. Right, and once again, the non-toxic stimuli cause an increase in pain sensitivity too. Um, it's not quite as, as strong as, as you see in the toxic mold animals, but it's a, it's a definite increase. They're, they're stronger than the controls. Uh,
2: they're more sensitive. As they've been wondering what's the difference between chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. Perhaps it's just a, a different balance of mycotoxins versus prevalence of fragments, more pain sensitization for the fibromyalgia. Right, or or mold or mold plus
1: bacteria, you know. Yeah. And is it, is it the bacteria the worst in this case or is it the mold? You know, who knows?
0: Yeah. Dr. Harding, in your opinion, and and this is something that, um, you know, it's just such a debate amongst uh, people in the chronic illness community, I guess you can say, quote unquote, Um, in your, maybe in your anecdotal opinion, what do you think is going on with people who seem to have overlapping um, diagnoses of EBV and Lyme and fibro and MS and seems like when chronically ill patients, they have a a gamut of a series of different infections that seem to overlap. And there's always a mold component to that. What do you think is happening here?
1: Well, one strong possibility is that the mold dysregulates the immune system. So once you've got your system dysregulated, you pick up these other things. And then if you're long-term mold exposed, the autoantibodies, or if you have a really strong um, exposure, the autoantibodies are something that occur. They can go away,
2: but if you, if you get appropriate treatment, but. Um, so so what, is, what is the best treatment for these severe mold exposures?
1: I have no idea. <laughs> That's not my area. Um, I wish I knew
2: from after my cat and I escaped, from that point on, if we ever got exposed to mold again, you know, she had that horrible cat. Mm-hmm. She would give that mournful wail. And she only did it when, we, when I felt mold slammed. So I know that she was just as sensitized as I was. Oh,
1: and that's something else. Um, you know, stachybotrys, when you, when you inhale satyrotoxin it actually kills the olfactory sensory cells.
3: That is so fascinating, Dr. Harding, because I've been wondering why there's some people who have long-term exposures and they walk into a musty building and they're, and, I'm, and I'm like, do you smell this? And they've said no. Right. Well, this was an issue with my husband and I, because we were exposed to toxic mold in our townhouse and we were really sick. And we had a lot of it fixed, but there was one room that we couldn't get fixed. We were renters at the time. And... I was trying to bring my husband in there to show him how moldy and musty the smell was. And he was like, I just don't smell it. And it was a big source of contention. And I've always wondered, why can't you smell this? It's so strong. I bet you the exposure damaged his olfactory nerve. Probably. Wow. Because
1: I've seen that happen. My husband can smell where I
2: don't. It's amazing how if you put a bunch of mold-sensitized people together and let them talk, all this just makes sense right so you so
0: would you characterize yourself as like a mold sensitive person like can you walk into a room and basically sense that there is contamination no my husband can I can't oh wow your husband can wow very interesting yeah we've all all three of us have been made hypersensitive so we're we're basically walking mold detectors we can (laughs) tell you where there's a bad area or not so it's not yeah. the best superpower to have, but I guess True. <laughs> you know, it's, it's good to save us from, uh, you know, I guess the, the unwarranted health effects, which we all know what they are. Um, right. through some of I, well, I wish
1: in some ways I wish I had that sense, not in all ways.
0: <laughs> yeah. But, but at least you have your husband, so you can say, right. Hey, you know, here's my companion <laughs> my early, my early warning system. <laughs> yeah. Again, like it's so interesting that you're studying psychobotrys. Do you have any future plans for any future studies or do you know? I'm retired was- now. So retired, yeah. yeah, So that's
1: another thing. You know, you're always talking about academics and how they're not doing the right things. Part of it is education. You know, if it doesn't coincide with things you've been taught, which is, I think, what happens
2: to doctors, they, they put on such a narrow educational. Alicia got on a phone call and was harassing the EPA about... Their studies into mold, and uh, it turns out that they're starting to look into mold, but their primary target is Aspergillus versicolor. Yeah, We're, why Aspergillus? Well, you know, what's why they choose that one? Well, it, it's more
1: commonly found in American homes than Stachy, um, so that might be one thing. Hmm. So, what I wanted to say is, so I was really lucky that when I got this into my head that I wanted to study this. I was able to get funded. Um, And I I think in retrospect, it it was just a small grant, but I think in retrospect, it was because it went in as part of an institutional grant from my college. So it was just one of the many experiments. It didn't go to the regular study section it would have gone to Um, because, and the reason I say that is because the people who evaluate your grant application And the people who actually fund you are different sets of people at at NIH. So when I first got to talk to my grant accounts officer, um, the first thing she said to me practically was, you will not be renewed. This was before I'd gotten into the research and I had any results. You will not be renewed um, because we're not interested in this, what you're doing. And they actually funded me between two institutes because I guess they couldn't get one the money from one of them, so they said, "Okay, you both pony up fifty percent, and we'll and we'll fund you."
2: Did you ever uh, correspond with Rick Kelly, Richard Kelly, from Lawrence Livermore Le- Laboratory? No. No, because he he told me that same story. Because if you look into this, forget your funding; you will not, you will not be funded. Right.
1: And then we we once we had results, we started talking to you know different grants officers at NIH and they were not interested in the work we wanted to do. As your invitee on, on the last podcast I listened to was saying, you know, when you go to get published, when you go for, for a grant application, you put in, you want to do one thing. And then the reviewers tell you, no, we want you to do, if you wanted to get funded, do something else. Um, and that's basically what they told me. If you want to get funded, we're, we're maybe interested in the effects on the brain, but we aren't interested in the effects, how that relates to the effects on behavior. And that's my interest. I wanna know what, yeah. how the brain is affecting behavior and how behavior is affecting
2: the brain. Well, I've, I've actually talked to CDC and NIH officials and they told me this is just too confusing. It's too big a can of worms and you can't do human studies. So it's just so hard to measure and so hard to study. Right.
0: Well, it looks like Dr. Harding's, your team, you, I mean, you were able to do, a great study here, and I wish that you could have expanded upon it. And it just sucks that you're cut off uh, with funding to, to look more into it. But um, I'm curious if you have any connection to Dr. Jamie Lichten, Lichtenstein from Emory?
1: No.
0: Um, apparently, she is doing research into Stachybotrys chartarum, um, and she's really focused on the intersection of genetic and environmental determinants of the of immune responses. When someone is exposed to this. I've been desperately trying to reach out to her to talk mm-hmm. with her. She actually was featured on a um a news segment where there was a family, a lawyer, Christine bear. She was made ill by toxic mold in her home. And Lichtenstein did kind of a little expert spiel. Um, but she has since gone into hiding. I, I reached out to her and she was, she said yeah initially. And then I haven't heard from her ever since. So um, I feel like you guys are just you guys are so important in this role right now with stacking and looking into, you know, tricotheasing producing molds and what they're doing, because it's such an important aspect of what's happening to the population. I mean, Dr. Harding, you know, I'm sure you get probably messages from people all the time of like, how do I take care of this mold issue? Because it's just such an epidemic now in the US. Um, and so anyone looking into this information is 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 important in our book and um so i guess i'll I'll have to keep trying to get a hold of lichtenstein (laughs) some way (laughs) somehow
2: (laughs) to talk about it but i came into my interest in stachybotrys because i was frustrated at doctors saying that all molds were the same so i hired a prominent mold inspector to go with me to various colonies well, I would stir them up and deliberately inhale them. This is before I knew how bad mold was. And he's going, oh, I wouldn't mess with that. That's penicillium. And I'd go, nah, no, nah, no problem. And I'd stir up some more. No, that looks like aspergillus. I've... So I, we went around all these different colonies and finally we found one on sheetrock. And boy, one exposure to that and it put me on the floor. And I'm going, that's it. That's it. That's the one. What is it? And it was Stachybotrys. So I'm going, well, that one, that stands out. I mean, that one really kicks my butt. Yeah, it's, it's nasty.
0: <laughs> hey, mold doctors and experts, I'm speaking to you. Do you have patients that no matter how hard you try, you just can't help them in the way that they need? Are you treating mold but seeing people stay sick or get worse? There may be some key points about toxic mold exposure that you are missing in your practice that patients need in order to support the best clinical outcomes possible. You can achieve superior outcomes by understanding the following. Common failures of indoor mold testing and remediation, mold hypersensitivity, and residual contamination. If you struggle with any of these concepts in your practice, Exposing Mold is here to support you as you support your patients. We work with clinicians to help them understand the struggles of the hypersensitive mold injured population. If you feel like you're not helping people the way you want, let us help you help others. Visit ExposingMold.com consultations and book your appointment with us today.
1: Take home messages. The first one is that mold inhalation definitely causes brain inflammation and decreases neurogenesis. Second, mold inhalation affects behavior. It caused striking deficits in contextual and spatial memory. It increased anxiety. It increased pain sensitivity. Three, these changes in behavior were correlated with changes in brain inflammation. We do not yet have experimental evidence of a causal connection between brain inflammation and behavioral dysfunction, but the pattern of correlations is consistent with the causal relationship. Fourth, the pattern of neural and behavioral effects caused by mold inhalation appears very similar to that caused by innate immune activation following bacterial or viral challenge. It thus appears that changes in immune function represent a common mechanism mediating the body's initial responses to bacteria, viruses, and mold. Fifth, Non-toxic mold stimuli clearly cause brain inflammation, emotional and cognitive dysfunction. There are at least 19 innate immune receptors known to recognize either components of the fungal cell wall and or fungal DNA or RNA. Just the presence of mold, like that of bacteria or viruses, can trigger these innate immune receptors. Active infection is not necessary. Toxins are not necessary. Six toxic spores clearly pose more of a danger. In addition to the non-toxic mold skeleton, they contain toxins, proteins, and volatile organic compounds that can interfere with the function of host cells. They are also capable of infection. Toxic spores did not always cause more behavioral abnormalities than non-toxic spores. On the tests that we administered, but toxic spores always cause more brain inflammation than the non-toxic spores. The correlations between brain inflammation and behavior were also always stronger in the toxic spore group. Just as in people, we found that individual mice responded differently to mold exposure. Although we were working with a highly inbred strain in which the mice are supposed to be almost genetically identical, some mice performed almost as well following mold treatment as they had before treatment, while the behavior of other mice was grossly impaired. Innate immune activation as a cause of mold illness explains the phenomenon of people getting sicker quicker with repeated mold exposure. Initial innate immune activation primes the immune system to act more quickly and more strongly with repeated exposure. The immune system often appears to have difficulty returning to baseline function following mold exposure. Since exposure to mold often persists for months or even years, it might be expected to cause prolonged innate immune activation of the type already demonstrated to be neurotoxic in a variety of diseases. But even if mold exposure is terminated in a timely fashion, the effects of brain immune activation often persist beyond resolution of the initial activation due to immune system priming. Prolonged brain inflammation has been implicated as a risk factor for neurodegeneration and cognitive decline. Mold exposure, both toxic and non-toxic, must be considered a risk factor, like organic chemical exposure or air pollution, that can increase an individual's inflammatory burden with possible serious consequences for health and behavior. I want to thank the Exposing Mold team for the opportunity to share our research with your audience. You're providing really valuable resources to the ever-growing community of people battling to overcome the effects of mold exposure.
0: Well, all right, Dr. Harding, thank you so much for joining us today. You are just so awesome, and and you're so down to earth, and your research is very pivotal and very important, and we appreciate you. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, I appreciate you guys. This is really important what you're doing, providing this forum for people.
0: Thanks. We're, we're, we're trying, you know, we're not always the most liked or the most favorable amongst people in the industry, but um, we don't I wonder care. Why. That's a good why. <laughs> you know, you've heard our, our content, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we, we are, we want to stick with the truth and we want to stick with science and, and practicing science the way it should be um, and continuing helping people in the best way possible. And that is preventing them important information. like yours.